When we think about some of the most famous rebellions, maybe the one that comes to mind the most, at least comes to my mind, is the rebellion of the, the uh, unified rebellion led by Princess Leia against the Galactic Empire, right? Yeah, that's right. Nerd alert. alert. That's right. Exactly. Now, I'm like, I think Disney must have really been doing their job with all of this, like, big push of Star Wars and Disney Plus and everything, because it seems like every other uh, illustration I've had in my sermon over the last several months has been Star Wars. So I've got to move on to something different. Yeah, for Steve, it's been really nice. But we think about real-life rebellions of tyrannical rule. You know, we've seen this throughout human history. Real-life rebellions against tyrannical rule. Some would even say that's where the founding of our country came from, was undue taxation, of course, and one of the many signs of what uh, uh, those here leading this country in its early formation thought was signs of tyrannical rule by the British Empire. And so we see throughout history what we would say justified formal rebellions, right? But when we look at um, our daily lives, when we look at leadership in our daily lives, as we're in the midst of this sermon series on leadership, we can see sort of daily, weekly, sort of every day, if you will, rebellion that comes in a sinful form of divisiveness. And so I thought it was really neat and really important as we were walking through this sermon series on leadership to also look at some of these instances of division and divisive leadership throughout these biblical characters and biblical history. And so we're going to take one of the most famous instances of those today, and that is Korah. And look at not only how do we deal with it if um, we are seeing divisive leadership and, and someone leading division in our midst, how do we deal with it? Or do we need to have an honest conversation with ourselves, God-led conversation with ourselves and say, am I part of this and part of divisiveness in my daily life and wherever God has placed me to lead? So how do we see this divisiveness in our everyday life? Well, what about an employee that you work with, a coworker that you work with that may regularly gossip about other employees, other coworkers? What about someone who is unfairly criticizing and being very critical of the boss, of the leader? Now, there's times, obviously, for constructive criticism, those things need to happen. But I think we all know there's times, and maybe we've even been guilty of this, where it tips over into something that's just it's divisive, right? What about at school, some of our students? What about... In school, are you one that's uh, being supportive of your teacher? Are you leading somebody to unduly and unfairly complain about your teacher? Now, teachers are human. Bosses are human. There's always mistakes that need to be made, and those things, we're going to talk about that too, of how to, how to challenge and how to uh, properly go and speak to a leader, a person who's leading something that may not be making the right decisions, and how do we do that? How do we properly do that so that we see progress without being divisive? But nonetheless, that's how we see some of those things and many other instances in our daily lives. But we see here in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 16, we see an instance here of divisiveness, divisive, rebellious leadership by Korah, a couple of his other cohorts, and a group of 250 against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And here's the thing that we're going to see as we begin reading through this very simple main idea today, very simple, straight to the point. God will correct divisive leadership. God will correct divisive leadership. Now here, let me say one thing, and I kind of circle back to this towards the end of the sermon series too. Let us not think that this is some sort of a passive-aggressive way for me as your pastor to say that we have divisive leadership here. Not at all. 
In fact, I've been greatly blessed by the fact that uh, you all as a congregation uh, are wonderful leaders that allow me to lead and support my leadership and lead tremendously in your own right. So let's not uh, think that that's at all what's happening here. But we always have to be careful of that, don't we? Not only in church settings, but any organization in which we're part of, our, our businesses, even our homes, school, whatever it might be. We have to take a look at the negative side, that other side of the coin of leadership as well. But I do, I thank the Lord that uh, you all as a church are tremendous, wonderful uh, leaders. And so we see here, um, God will correct divisive leadership. Now, before we get into the, the, the heart of this passage here in Numbers chapter 16, a little background on Korah and those that were with him. Uh, he was part of, kind of loosely associated with that Levitical priesthood that was coming to prominence. The Aaronic, meaning led by Aaron of the line and lineage of Aaron in the Levitical service, they were, that was coming to prominence in the service unto God, in the tabernacle, and formal worship amongst the people later that we see in the temple itself. And fading from the scene was that sort of priesthood led by family heads. And so Korah and his co-conspirators, what they did is they were confronting Moses and saying, we want to restore that old way of things. And they didn't handle it in the way that they should. And so we see here starting in Numbers chapter 16, let's start in verses 1 through 3. And it says this, now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and On, the sons of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So these were important men in their own right, 250 of them, not to mention uh, Korah and his co-conspirators. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourself. I mean, you're taking too much credit. Not, they weren't saying sort of an underhanded way, oh, you guys are doing too much, let us help you. They were just, the way you see that in the original language is that they were forthrightly saying, you guys are trying to take too much power for yourself. You're trying to do too much. For all of the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of, of God? And yes, it was true that God is amongst the people, but it seemed like a bit of a force field to kind of get a foot in the door about what they wanted to do. So a little more about Korah himself. Understandably, this man must have been someone of tremendous natural leadership ability. Tremendous natural leadership ability. To lead two very important men to be his co-conspirators and then 250 more saying men of renown to come and, and to stage a rebellion, divisive leadership against Moses and Aaron. Now, as we've said starting last week, and we're going to continue to remind ourselves throughout the midst of this sermon series, is that you might think, oh, you know, I'm not very high on the scale of natural leadership ability. You know, and really, I'm just going to kind of space out during this sermon series, or I'll listen, see if I can get something. But he's surely talking to, pastor's surely talking to people with a lot better natural leadership ability than me. Not at all. Now, objectively, there's some that might have uh, more leadership opportunities than others, for whatever reason that might be. But all of us, all of us are leaders. And that's not a trope. That's not uh, just some sort of a uh, thing that you stitch on a throw pillow that all of us are leaders. No, this is legitimate. We all, whether we think that our sphere of leadership has a great deal of objective importance or whether we think it's a rather small sphere of leadership, all of us have important roles of leadership. And even if you don't feel like, gosh, I'm not an out front leader. I don't like to be out in front of people. 
we all still have opportunities to lead and opportunities to stretch ourselves and opportunities to be introspective about ourselves. And that's especially what we're seeing today as we look at Korah. But nonetheless, Korah must have been an important man with incredible leadership skills. And so here's the thing. Regardless of what we believe our leadership skills to be, here's what we have to understand right off the bat about this narrative with Korah. You have the choice to use your leadership ability for the Lord or for Satan. There is no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. We understand that we live in a world in which God is bringing the world, is working to redeem the world unto himself. And we know Satan, the enemy of the Lord, uh, the devil, is working to thwart the God's plan of redemption in the world in which we live. And we see even in the midst of this broken world in which we live, stirring the pot of brokenness in our world. You see, either we're going to be a leader for the Lord or we're going to be a leader for the enemy. There is no neutral ground. Are we following the Lord in whatever place you find yourself in leadership? Again, you say, well, gosh, I can't. I don't lead really anybody. Yes, you do. There's somebody in some way at some time that you lead. Are we using that leadership for the Lord? But what happens here as we continue, we see this challenge here by Korah that he complains and he brings this division. In verses 4 through 7, we see that Moses, though, though he responds with a God-anchored confidence. His confidence is not anchored in himself and his own ability, but it is anchored in the Lord. So when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. He spoke to Korah and all the company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his, who is holy, and who will cause him to come, to near, come near him. That one whom the Lord chooses, he will cause to come near him. Do this, he says. Take censers, that was uh, little... Uh, little uh, devices in which they would burn incense. Take those censers, you and all your company, put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is holy. That is the holy one. He says, you take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. You're trying to take too much credit. You're trying to take too much unto yourself. Why did he respond with this? Why did the Lord lead him to respond to this challenge when this God-confident way of responding with this challenge of the censers. Well, we know from the history of, of Israel and their worship that these censers were very important and that they reflected the holiness of God. They were an important part of worship. And in fact, treating that uh, act of worship, leading and treating that act of worship was something that had the penalty of death, treating it profanely. And so he knew it was time to put up or shut up. They had to be really really truthfully seeing and being introspective or were they of the lord or were they being used by the enemy but he responds not with confidence in himself but with confidence in god and here's the thing when you face a great challenge to your leadership and again this doesn't just apply to those that lead tons of people when you face a great challenge to your leadership remember that you are god's man or woman for that time and place you're not there by happenstance if we believe in the sovereignty of God, if we believe what the Bible tells us, that the Lord God is sovereign, and that it's no mistake where you find yourself, that you are God's man or woman exactly for that time and place. That doesn't mean it's going to be without difficulty. We'd all love nice, smooth roads. We talked about that last week. We'd all love roads that look like our turnpike as opposed to the roads, the highways that go down into Oklahoma. We'd love, we'd love that to be nice and smooth all the time, but that's not the way it is. 
Sometimes there's going to be difficulty and challenges because we live in a broken world. And guess what? Some of those challenges, those challenges are there, those potholes are there that you might rely upon the Lord and grow as part of it. Isaiah 41.10, though, God tells us this, and one of the many promises of courage that we, uh, that we can have and we can draw from him. 41.10 of the book of Isaiah says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. God says, I, I, I. It's not in you. Your courage isn't found within yourself. It's found in the one that you serve. But this continues on here. We see here in verses 8 through 11, when Moses, he confronts these rebels, and it says to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve him, and that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? He's saying, is this not a big deal to you? You're taking this lightly. God has given you leadership responsibility in leading the people to draw near unto himself, and you're taking it lightly. You're treating it profanely. Therefore, you uh, and all your company are gathered together. What does he say? Are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? He says, in fact, are you seeking the priesthood also there at the end of verse 10? What does that reveal to us? It's, it brings to the forefront selfish ambition. <clears throat> Folks, listen to this. Divisive leadership is often driven. Divisive leadership is often driven by this selfish desire to be honored and in control. That's what the Bible talks about as selfish ambition. It's often driven by this selfish desire to be honored and in control. Now, there's nothing wrong. We talk about this quite often, too. There is nothing wrong with pure ambition, to want to do a good job at something, to see a problem, want to solve a problem, and say, you know what, I feel like I'm the best man or woman to take that problem, and I don't care if others get the honor and the glory and the credit for it. I just want to see this organization or this church, my place of employment, whatever it is, I want to see it move forward. And I feel like I can do a good job there. And by the way, I'm also going to use that as an opportunity to reflect glory upon the Lord. But we know oftentimes divisive leadership is driven by selfish desire to be honored and in control. But what does Moses say here as he continues on? And he says, you, in verse 11, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. Here's the thing. This is the crux of it. Ultimately, we have to remember that division is ultimately a division not against the person, but against the Lord, against God, especially when we think about division within a church setting. Now, let me return to where I started again. I say this again wholeheartedly. You as a church body, especially in the midst of all the changes that we've been going through and are continuing to go through, have been a wonderful, wonderful church that is not at all exemplified by divisive leadership. And the Lord's hand has been upon us and has been upon you. But we all have to whether it's this setting or whether the Lord moves you to another city or another state and you find yourself in another church, we all have to be careful that we are being used for the Lord's leadership and not for division. Ultimately, we are gathered against not just whoever it might be that's leading, but against the Lord. Romans 16, or excuse me, Numbers 16, continuing on in verses 12 through 15, we see here, not only does he confront the group of rebels as a whole, but Moses confronts Dathan, and Abiram, the two that are with 
uh, Korah, two guys that were along with him and leading with him as well. And it says in verse 12, starting there, And Moses sent to Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We're not going to come up. I said, Nope, we're not going to come up there. They knew it was coming. Uh, is it a small thing that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should keep acting like a prince over us? You sent some almost sarcasm because Moses, we see in the previous section, says, you know, was it a small thing? Do you think it's a small thing that God gave you leadership to lead the people in holiness? And you're treating it like it's no big deal, like it's just a small thing. You almost see this sort of sarcasm in their voice and say, well, is it a small thing to you that you led us out of Egypt and you led us into the wilderness and you led us to starve to death? Moreover, you've brought us, not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you now put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. That, that saying, put out the eyes of this men, uh, is, is not exactly what we think there. It's that sort of looking, uh, looking down upon someone. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's saying trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes. Are you trying to pull the wool over, over our eyes? They're, they're uh, accusing Moses and Aaron of not just leading the people poorly, but also of being ones that are being purposely deceptive. And he says this, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, here's the thing. Behind all divisive leadership is the propensity to complain and be negative, right? Behind all rebellious, divisive leadership is a propensity to complain and be negative. Now, again, as we're going to talk about at the end of this sermon series, we come to a larger section of application. If there's something that needs to be changed in whatever organization um, or there's concern that you have in an organization or a church or whatever it might be, obviously there is a responsibility and an openness to go and to, to ask questions and, to, and to, 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 to dig at an issue and see if it can't be fixed, but how do we do it? When it's done poorly, divisively, behind all divisive leadership is a propensity to complain and be negative. You know, you've heard the term looking at something through rose-colored glasses, right? We just kind of want to look at it through rose-colored glasses and see the best in things. Well, when we are complaining and being divisive, we have a tendency to just look through like mud-colored glasses. Everything is dark. Everything is dim. Everything is difficult. Are we looking through mud-colored glasses? But it continues on here as we see now that showdown kind of begins to come to fruition in verses 16 through 19. It says, Moses says to Korah, tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer, put his incense in it. Each of you bring your censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took that censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and they stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. So a crowd begins to gather. A crowd begins to just kind of cue the Old West music. You know, I, I wish I could whistle that little thing. I think you know what I'm talking about, but I can't, so I'm not going to try. Yeah, something like that, right? That showdown Old West music. You can just hear it. They're gathered there. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the congregation. See, this wasn't a gamble. Moses wasn't gambling because he knew that the ultimate leader in this situation was not himself, but the ultimate leader in this moment was God. And he was put there for just a time as that, exactly where God wanted him to. And as we see here, we continue on in verses 20 and 22, but listen to this amazing sort of twist, if you will. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. God's bringing judgment. He's going to consume them 
in a moment. Then they, Moses and Aaron, they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with the whole congregation? Even in the midst of this, we would think, oh man, Moses and Aaron, they are justified. Tell them, you stand out there and say, God, bring down that fire. Bring it down. Come on. Bring down that fire. We would think we'd have empathy with them. We would say, oh, I completely understand. But in the midst of it, what did Moses have? He had a broken heart for the people that he led. He had a broken heart for the people he led. Not just the whole congregation, because as we see a little bit later, not going to be our specific passage today, but at the end of Numbers chapter 16, we see that they had had a great Korah, his cohorts, and these 250 men had had some, some great play within the whole congregation of Israel. So even that, they heard some murmurings from the whole congregation of Israel. But Moses and Aaron, they had a heart for the people. They had empathy. Listen to this. Christ-like empathy is what changes our perspective on those that we lead and those that lead us. Christ-like empathy. If we're having difficulty with someone that is being divisive in our, in our, at our office, at our place of work, and they're being divisive, and they're, it's really difficult on our leadership, do we first think about them as a child of God? Or do we first think of them as a person who is created in the image of God, who might be living a broken life, living in the midst of a broken world, hopeless, trying to search and find something? Do we have that sort of empathy? Do we have this sort of Christ-like empathy that we saw exhibited by Christ himself? Think about that. We've heard, many of us that have grown up in church, we've heard the stories of how Jesus Christ was mistreated. We've heard the stories how Jesus Christ was beaten. We've heard that how the, the stories of how the religious establishment turned on Jesus. And we've heard those stories so much so, so many times, that oftentimes I think the sting or the impact of those can be lost on us. Jesus Christ fa faced far more divisive leadership, divisive action against himself than we will ever face. But yet he had empathy on those around him. Empathy on those around him. Christ-like empathy changes our perspective on those that we lead and those that lead us. So we see here then, not only did Moses and Aaron have this sort of empathy for the people, but then they continue to carry through and they warn the people of God's coming judgment. Verses 23 and following says, So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation. Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Get away. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Get away from them. Separate yourself from them. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all of these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like other men, or if they're visited by a common fate of all men, then the Lord's not sent me. If they just die of natural causes, then, you know, just like everybody else. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. He said, get away from them. Depart from their leadership. Do we have to have the courage sometimes when we are faced with divisive leadership 
of those around us to just say kindly but firmly, speaking the truth in love, I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to get away from this. And I know sometimes when we are especially following the leadership of someone that can have some tremendous uh, leadership skills, even if it's negative, someone that can be very influential, sometimes we might even call it manipulative. It can be hard to sort of separate ourselves from that person, but the Bible tells us again that we've not been given a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, but a power of love and of sound mind to, in that case, speak the truth and love, remove ourselves. And in verse 31 and 35, we see here the judgment of God. And then it came to pass as he finished speaking all those words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth, swallowed them up with their households and all the men of Korah with all their goods. And those, and those all who went down into the, the pit alive and the earth closed over them, they perished among the assembly. And then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. You see, here's the thing. We are reminded very distinctly and very vividly that God does not stand for division. It is a Satan-empowered disease in any organization, in any church. He doesn't stand for it. It is a Satan-empowered disease in any organization, in any church. And you say, well, it's... Satan really at work in my work, in my place of business, the place where I work? Sure he is. You say, well, you know, I might be the only believer there or, you know, there's another believer there. Is he really at work in my place of work? Certainly. Conflict in general does the work of, of, of the enemy. Conflict in general, if it's in any context, if it's in a context not even just of a church, but in any sort of con, uh, area, it just does the work of the enemy to, to create division and conflict. And especially think if he can somehow loop you into that as a believer in Jesus Christ that's looking to do the work of the good news of the gospel in that place, if he can kind of scoop you into that and loop you into that, now he's made you ineffective for the gospel. Of course, churches as well. We know that that is one of Satan's oldest tricks in the book is to create division in a local church. And let me tell you what, we really do feel like there are great days ahead of us and we're seeing some wonderful things that God is doing, building up a great family atmosphere in our midst and we see some great things ahead. You know what that means? That's going to bring with it the attacks of the enemy. So we just got to be prepared. And this is one of the oldest tools in the book, division, divisive leadership. But we see here that not only did God fulfill this promise and not stand for divisive leadership, but we see here as it continues in verses 36 and following, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest to pick up the censers out of the blaze for they themselves, the censers were holy. They were used. They were set apart unto tabernacle service unto the Lord and scatter the fire some distance away. The censers of these men who sinned against their own souls, let them be hammered into plates as a covering for the altar because they presented them before the Lord. Therefore, they are holy and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. God set those censers apart for service unto himself. So even though they were used by sinful men, they were still holy. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers which were burned up to be presented. They were hammered as a covering for the altar to be fashioned as a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who is not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord said to him through Moses. God is still holy. They had taken lightly their service unto the Lord. They said, what's the big deal? 
What's the big deal? Anyone can do this. No big deal. You see, the principle amongst all of these things is that God is still holy. God is still holy. Now, here's the thing. Listen to this. As we're thinking about leading, whether we think about the entirety of this sermon series or we think about leading in the midst of divisive leadership around us or being introspective and say, can I be a divisive leader? Is that something I need to give over to to the Lord and, and ask forgiveness of and ask him to change me? Is that when we have the perspective of God's holiness, that rules the day. That gives us the courage to do what we need to do. The perspective that leaves us in awe of God and his holiness is the same perspective that allows us to walk in confidence. When we keep in the forefront of our mind that the ultimate leader and wherever we find ourselves is God himself, that perspective that that he is holy, he is mighty, and our leadership finds its root in him and not ourselves, when we keep that in mind, it is that same awe that gives us the perspective to walk in confidence. So I promised you some application here before we circle back around and, and close out today. So the question is, how do we bring change without being divisive? What are some ways that you can bring change without being divisive? First of all, develop a reputation as an anti-gossip, as an anti-gossip. That's one of the first things you can do. Develop a reputation of an anti-gossip. You know what that means? Sometimes you'll be left out of conversations. It will. Sometimes you'll feel like you're a little bit on the outside looking in because I think, if we're honest, Think about just how many of our conversations and whatever we find ourselves sometimes can, can very easily slip into and rotate around gossip, right? So we'll find ourselves left out of some conversations. But here's the thing. In the long run, you'll be well-respected. You, you think, well, gosh, in my place of work, won't they just think I'm kind of a goody-goody or just I'm a kiss-up or something? Well, if you're gossiping about everybody else, but you refuse, hey, let's not gossip about the boss, well, Maybe. But if you look at everyone, again, you have that, that empathetic perspective of those around you, and you're seeing them with Christ's eyes, and you're going to say, I'm not going to gossip about anybody. And over time, you'll be respected for that. In the long run, you'll be respected. You say, well, pastor, let, let me just be honest. How do, I change a, how do I change a reputation that I have of being a gossip? What do I do? Well, here's what you need to do. And it's not easy. You might just need to, well, stop, first of all. Just ask the Lord to help you. But then if it comes up, need to have an awkward conversation at times of saying, you know what, I realized I, I was being a gossip, and I'm really trying hard to not be a gossip. And you know what's going to happen? Immediately the person might kind of draw back because they'll feel that a little bit of thinking, oh, so you're saying I'm, I'm a gossip here. And what you got to do is you just got to say, listen, I'm not being judgmental towards anyone. I'm not being judgmental towards you. I just realized I was a pretty bad offender in this, and I feel like it's something I want to change in my life, and I'm asking the Lord to help me change it. Guess what? That also gives you gospel opportunity. That gives you gospel opportunity. Then what do you do then? So that's something that you sort of take back and ask the Lord to change in your life. Go speak directly to the leader, your boss, whoever it might be. You know my door's always open if there's an issue at the church. And again, uh, just because I, I tell you wholeheartedly I don't see this issue at our church, that doesn't mean that I'm expecting no one to come and, and ask me a question. I think you guys have been very, very good about doing that, and you know my door's open. But whatever it may be, let's say your boss at work, teacher at school, go speak openly and honestly with that one. And here's the thing. Be prepared to faithfully carry out their decision. Be prepared to faithfully carry out that, that their decision. If you believe that whatever way they're leaning, whatever decision they have might be a wrong decision, go and talk with them. 
talk with them in private and say, here's an issue or concern I have with this. They come around and they say, yeah, I, I can hear that, but here's what I still want to do. You say, well, I've got your back. We're going to do it. And time will tell if it was the wrong decision or not, or if it was the right decision. And guess what you can't do? Here's the follow-up to that, the addendum. Don't scoreboard anybody. Don't scoreboard anybody and say, I told you so, right? Because you erode your leadership capabilities there as well. So then the second thing is, how do you handle divisiveness against you? And again, you might say, well, gosh, I'm not in a very wide uh, scope of leadership. But we all have places in which we lead. First of all, ask yourself prayerfully, is there some truth to the, to the issue that someone brings up? There may be some truth in it, even if the person's not handling it the right way. You know, that's a really hard thing to grasp and can leave you really in bad situations. If there's someone that has a reputation for being a complainer or a gossip, you know what? That doesn't mean they're always wrong. There's, they could just be handling it poorly. And if you're not open to hearing what it is, even if they're handling it wrong, you can get stuck way out over your skis. You can get stuck way out in, in a wrong place because you weren't willing to listen. A person, even though they don't handle it right, you just shut it down and say, I'm not going to listen to that person. Well, they may actually be right in this case, right? But first of all, so you've got to be open. Secondly, have you prayed to the Lord and asked the Lord to change their heart? That's before you do any sort of specific conversation with them. Have you asked the Lord to change their heart? Third, have you spoken to them directly? That's the last thing you want to do is sort of go around and sort of gossip and go behind that person's back to, have you done the hard work of speaking to them directly? You know, and some of us love confrontation. Well, that sounds kind of funny. Some of us are, are, are very natural at confrontation. They can do it really well. Some of us don't like confrontation. You know what you can do when you have to talk to a person directly? You can just say, yeah, you know what? I don't like this. This is not fun. You don't have to act like you're some tough guy or some tough girl. You can, just, you can just say, listen, I don't like this. I don't like doing this, but, you know, it needs to be done. Have you spoke to them directly and lovingly? Then if the person's unwilling to listen, have you thought about bringing in another colleague or another brother or sister in Christ, if that's the context of Matthew chapter 18? And by the way, we see that, of course, in Matthew chapter 18. But that principle applies really well to any circle of life, even at work. And then, of course, have you spoken, if it's not that, have you spoken kindly, lovingly, uh, and fairly to a superior? Are those things that you've done if you're not seeing any progress? But most important, when you circle back around to that, are you having the empathy of Christ? Are you having the empathy of Christ? Empathy doesn't mean we sweep something under the rug and never deal with it. But empathy means we start with Christ's perspective. We start with the perspective that we are all have a propensity to sin. Are we starting with that perspective? Again, what if, uh, bring about change if, if you're being divisive. Develop that reputation of an anti-gossip. Speak directly to the leader and faithfully carry out their decision. Here's the thing. God does not, God does not stand for, God does not bless divisive leadership. He never has, he never will. In fact, he will correct it. Let us be not like Korah, his cohorts in the 250, but let us be like Moses and Aaron who had empathy for those around us and allowed God to lead us as the ultimate leader of all. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at uh, this specific instance of leadership here today and sort of the negative side of the coin, if you will, of, of leading negatively and divisively, this is an important part of leadership, not only for how we deal with it if we're facing divisiveness as a leader, but also to be introspective of ourselves. Are we causing division 
at school, work, home, church, uh, social clubs we're involved in, whatever it might be. And Lord, in all things, I pray that you would help us to take seriously whether we feel like we're natural leaders with a wealth and a bevy of leadership skills or whether we think that we are someone who lacks those things. May we realize that we are leaders. We're leaders for you, for your glory, your honor, and we go in your power and your wisdom. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.